Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 11. Today we're going to read all 15 verses in this chapter. And I want to start this morning by mentioning one of uh, my favorite hymns. I know you hear every week, oh, this is one of my favorite hymns. This is one of my favorites. This is, this is it. For, uh, for all the saints. And I'd like to highlight one verse in particular that says, O may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old and win with them the victor's crown of gold. Alleluia. Alleluia. I remind you, alleluia means God be praised. Who's the hymn writer talking about? It's a prayer, of course. He's asking the Lord for soldiers. Soldiers who would faithfully fight just like those who'd come before them. But who are these soldiers? They're the church. The redeemed people of God. The saints. And in this one verse, we see mention of what theologians throughout the centuries have referred to as the church militant and the church triumphant. I don't know if you've heard of these two distinctions, the church militant and the church triumphant. The church militant refers to the church here on earth. All believers from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ dwelling in this veil of tears on this side of heaven. And they're called the church militant. Why? Because they are engaged or should be engaged in conflict and war. They're soldiers who are to fight. Well, who or what are they fighting against? Well, Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians, we wrestle against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who the church is warring against. Or to be more specific, the church militant is warring against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I can't spend too much time here, so I'll be brief in defining these. What is the the world that the Christian soldier is warring against? Well, it is the opposite of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom... The Lord Jesus teaches of in the Sermon on the Mount. The world is the polar opposite. It is opposed to the kingdom of heaven. It is the kingdom of darkness and unbelief. It is the kingdom that is in rebellion against God. It is the kingdom that enslaves all those under its control. And scripture refers to this kingdom of darkness as the world. It's what's out there. But what about the flesh? The flesh is in here. The flesh 
is everything in a person that is opposed to the Holy Spirit. The flesh is everything in a person that is actively working against the Holy Spirit. I want you to imagine if every grace was taken from you, if every fruit of the Spirit somehow vanished from your life and there was no Christ-likeness whatsoever remaining, what would be left? Pure, undiluted life in the flesh. And then finally, of course, is the devil. The prince of unseen powers. The prince of spiritual forces. That's what's meant by the prince of the power of the air. He is the prince of the unseen powers. He's the ruler of the world and the flesh. He's the great enemy who tempted our first parents in Eden. He's the one described as a lion prowling, looking for someone to devour. And the church militant wars against these three as we follow in the footsteps of our captain, Jesus Christ, who fought against and won the victory over the devil. I think it was in the April edition of Table Talk magazine from this past year. One, one author was writing of the church militant, and, and he said this. He said, Christ came into this world to lead an invasion. And the effect of his work was to topple Satan, the former ruler of this world. He, Christ, established the kingdom of God with power. Since his victory, the good news of his finished work has been going out to the ends of the world. Through the preaching of his word, strongholds are cast down, captives are freed, and many are added to his army. That army is the church militant. But what about the church triumphant? It is the full number of those who have died in the Lord and have departed to be with him. They are the church triumphant. For them, the earthly battle is over. They are happier than we are. They're enjoying the eternal rest and blessedness of being in the presence of God. In Revelation 14, we read, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors. These are the saints who nobly fought of old and won the victor's crown of gold, as the hymn says. Theologian Louis Burkhoff speaks of the church triumphant when he says, There the sword is exchanged for the palm of victory. The battle cries are turned into songs of triumph. The cross is replaced by the crown. The strife is over. The battle is won. And the saints reign with Christ forever and ever. That is the church triumphant. And dear saint, when your race is complete, you will be safely brought and placed among their ranks.
Now, why begin this way? With the church militant and the church triumphant. Well, we have a battle and fighting in today's text. And so I feel the leeway to run with it. And in addition, I'm convicted that many of us, myself included, live as if there is no fighting to be done at all. And there's no war raging around us. We live in a country, and I'm very grateful for this. We live in a country where we enjoy freedom to worship God. Freedom our ancestors won for us. But in that freedom, we can grow comfortable and apathetic. And we may find that we can't really relate to the fighting sung of in For All the Saints. We're forgetful that we're called to be the church militant. And instead, we can very easily become the church business. One commentator noted, In many ways, the business world has replaced the battlefield when thinking about the work of evangelism. Gospel work is not war, but commerce. We go to sell a product, not fight in a battle. We are marketers, not soldiers. We have merchandise, not weapons. We face potential customers, not an enemy. We're out to expand our market share and increase our customer base, not to capture, defeat, and destroy a foe. The language of war, weapons, and battle is too extreme for the way we think about evangelism. We are more like advertisers than fighters. This is the church business. And this business model for church growth is easily found, but is failing. And why wouldn't it? If it's true what the scripture says, that Satan has blinded the mind of the unbeliever to keep him from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, how might the church business win them? How do you gain a customer who is blind and hostile to what you are selling? You don't. So instead, most church growth nowadays, I think I first heard Tim Keller's wife, Kathy, say this. Most church growth is the circulation of the saints. Believers going from one church to another. We need to remember that we're in the middle of a fight and that our Lord has provided us weapons that have his power to destroy strongholds and darkness, weapons like the scriptures and the prayers of the saints. So we are going to see a battle today, and it's my, it, it was my prayer as I wrote this sermon that everyone who hears this would be reminded of the spiritual battle that continues to rage today and that you'd have your eyes directed to the one through whom we will gain the victory. So let's pray, and then we'll read our text. Uh, Almighty God, before we read your word, that we plead that you would send your spirit to work through it. And God will read in a moment of, of your spirit rushing upon Saul, 
Father, we ask the same. Would your spirit rush upon us this morning and work through your word preached? Father, may we listen. May we listen intently as those awaiting a glimpse of the precious Savior. Not as those who are wanting to hear a a good sermon or learn something new or hear something interesting. May we listen with longing expectation to catch a glimpse of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. 1 Samuel 11, we'll read the entirety of the chapter together. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh, uh, Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, Let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal. 
And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So who is the enemy that the people of God are fighting against? Chapter 11 introduces us to Nahash, king of the Ammonites. Who were the Ammonites? They lived in the territory east of the Jordan River. So the Philistines were on the west side of Israel. The Ammonites were on their east. And if you're any good at Old Testament trivia... You might remember that the Ammonites were actually cousins of Israel. Back in Genesis 19, following the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham's nephew, Lot, had fled into the hills with his two daughters. His wife was not with them. She'd been reduced to a pillar of salt. And in Genesis 19, we read... That Lot's daughters are worried that they'll never find a man and they'll never have children stuck out in the boonies with their dad. And so they form a disgusting, wicked plan. They get their father, Lot, very drunk and they both have sex with him. Both daughters become pregnant and both have sons. One son was named Moab, he was the father of the Moabites, and the other was Ben-Ami, who was the father of the Ammonites. So needless to say, the children of Israel despised their inbred cousins, and the feeling was mutual. There was a long history of enmity between the two peoples. And that hatred is very much alive and well in 1 Samuel 11. Nahash was king. And he was terrorizing all the Israelites who lived on the eastern shore of the Jordan. And he had this thing about gouging out eyes. You know, every villain has their thing. Nahash, his thing was gouging out eyes. But it wasn't purely... Sadism. It had a practical purpose as well. I read that soldiers during this time would often fight with a shield in their left hand and a sword or spear in their right, which meant that their body and the left side of their face would be protected behind the shield and they could slash or stab with their right. But what if you removed the right eye? The soldier would become much less capable in battle. It would be like cutting the fingers off of bowmen. That's what he's doing. And we're told that he has the city surrounded. And the people are huddled together within the walls. And they're terrified. And they try to make a deal, anything to save their lives. And what does Nahash say? Sure, I'll let you live. But it's going to cost you your right eye. And then we see the intent of Nahash, don't we? Near the end of verse 2. And thus bring disgrace on all Israel. 
That's what Nahash wants the most. That's his driving motivation. To bring disgrace upon all Israel. To have those proudy, haughty, well-bred cousins unable to fight and subjected to him as his slaves. That's what he wants. You know, I opened talking about the enemies we war against. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And this is what they want too. They want you, dear Christian, to give up, to fall to temptation, to hand yourself over to them so that you may be incapacitated and made unfit to fight against them. They want to give you scars that you may bear for the rest of your life and bring disgrace upon the church in the name of the Lord. I mean, this is what happens every time a pastor falls, isn't it? We're the easy, tragic example. A pastor is enslaved by secret sin. He is made unfit to serve in his office. And he brings disgrace upon the church. But it's not only pastors who are at risk. Everyone who claims the name of Christ, everyone who is a fighter, everyone who stands under Christ's banner has a target on their back. We need to remember that we are in a battle. We have real enemies. Unseen forces of darkness that totally dwarf the malice and intent of Nahash. But look what happens. The besieged Israelites don't just give up. They, uh, they say, give us seven days to send messengers for help. And if no one comes to save us, then we'll be your one-eyed slaves. I mean, talk about a long shot. But Nahash agrees to this. He says, sure, send out for help. I mean, obviously, he didn't see this as a threat at all. Israel was so weak, so divided. He's convinced no one will come. And so he lets the messengers go. We can sit here and wait. We don't have anywhere to be. Maybe I don't expend some of my soldiers or uh, some of my weapons. We'll just sit and wait. And if nothing else... This will only help to spread terror of me throughout the whole nation. Well, what happens? One of these messengers reaches the ear of the newly crowned king, Saul in Gibeah. Now, there's a whole history that I'm going to briefly go into. uh, A history that was not so distant. In 1 Samuel 11, it's distant to us. It was not distant in 1 Samuel 11, and it's the history told in Judges 19. You know, when I was in seminary, I took a preaching lab. Usually it was on a Wednesday afternoon. There was 10 or 11 students. You would be assigned a sermon to preach. You'd stand up, preach it in front of the other students and the teachers, and you'd get critiqued. 
Well, for one of those sermons, I chose uh, to preach on Judges 19. And when I was finished, my professor said, Well, Mr. Wyndham, I don't know if I should give you a B for bold or an F for foolhardy. I think I got a B. But it is a dark, dark narrative in Israel's history. A Levite comes to Gibeah with his concubine. At night, the home where they're lodging is surrounded by a mob of perverts who intended to sexually assault the priest. And obviously, he didn't want to go outside. And so to appease the mob, he opens the door and pushes out his concubine. This young girl pushes her out into the darkness, and she is raped and dies from her injuries. Now, that's not Sodom and Gomorrah we're talking about. This is something that happened within the borders of Israel, in the town of Gibeah, by people from the tribe of Benjamin. And do you remember the line repeated over and over again in the book of Judges? There was no king in Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We better take deadly serious what can happen in a society when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. As you continue in Judges, it remains dark that the Levite discovers his dead concubine the next morning, dismembers her, sends her body parts to all the other tribes, basically saying, look what the men of Benjamin have done, so come and fight. Well, Benjamin does not repent. This leads to a civil war. All the other tribes go to war against them, except for one city, our city in 1 Samuel 11, Jabesh. They would not fight against Benjamin. And so after the war, Benjamin is almost wiped out. And 400 virgins are taken from Jabesh, the city that would not fight. And they're brought to Gibeah to be wives for young men so that Benjamin would not totally die out. Now on a quick note, I hope this historical account strengthens your confidence in the veracity and truthfulness of Scripture. Because if the writers are just making up stuff as they went along, if this is just propaganda and mythology meant to glorify Israel, then why in the world would you include a story like that that makes you look terrible? This is the Apostle Paul's tribe, after all. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He carried some weight in the early church. If they were just creating their history, then why would Paul let this remain? Because it's not made up. Because it's real history. In the scriptures, we're told the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it's all true. Now, apart from strengthening your confidence in the trustworthiness of Scripture, why bring up this awful story from Judges 19? We have parallels in our text. Why are the people of Gibeah weeping in verse 4? 
because their grandmothers or their great-grandmothers had been those women taken from Jabesh. They have family in Jabesh, and they hear this news, and they're so upset. And then look what Saul does. He takes an oxen and cuts it into pieces and sends it throughout the nation with the message, come and fight or else this will be done to your oxen. The people wouldn't have missed these similarities. And they respond. The unthinkable happens. The people gathered to Saul. They took up arms. They send messengers back to the surrounded city and say, hey, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you'll have salvation. And then just to keep Nahash off his guard, just to keep him feeling comfortable and happy with himself, the people in the city then send out a message saying, tomorrow we're yours and you can do with us whatever you want. And then that night in the early dark hours of the morning, Saul's forces attack Nahash and the Ammonite army is totally destroyed. Now, I've yet to mention the most important detail of this chapter. What is that? The work of the Spirit of God. Saul doesn't do this all on his own. We're told in verse 6 that after Saul heard the news, the Spirit of God rushed upon him and his anger was greatly kindled. The Spirit of God comes upon him so that he will be equipped and empowered to save God's people from slavery and death. You know, as the church militant, we are not called to be strong in ourselves. To strive against the world and the flesh and the devil in our own power. No, we are equipped and enabled by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And there's that famous paragraph in Ephesians 6, the whole armor of God. You know how it begins? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's how Paul begins it. By saying your strength, your power to fight isn't found within yourself and your own nature. It comes from him. And this, notice what the Spirit does. Out of the whole nation, salvation comes from Gibeah, from Sin City, that place of darkness that sparked the civil war at the end of Judges. God brings light and salvation out of a place of great darkness. And I would remind you that there is no person or people, or place too dark for God to save. And you think of the Apostle Paul, a Benjaminite. At one point, the greatest threat to the, th- to the fledgling church in Jerusalem. He was terrorizing them. But the Lord changed him. And the Spirit came upon him. And he became the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. Think of John Newton, 
the pastor we're studying on Wednesday nights, the, the pastor and hymn writer, who, uh, he, here's a quote that he said of his late teens and early 20s. Not content with running after sin myself, I was tireless in enticing others. And had my influence been equal to my wishes, I would have carried all the human race with me. I had the ambition of a Caesar or an Alexander and wanted to rank in wickedness among the foremost of the human race. That's what young John Newton wanted. The the hymn writer of amazing grace. He wanted to be the worst sinner on earth and to bring everyone with him. And yet the Lord changed John Newton and used him to shepherd untold numbers of souls. The slave ship captain would become one of the foremost voices in the abolition of the African slave trade in Britain. Now our sin is great, but God is greater. And he is quite capable to take brigands and scoundrels and miscreants and place them among the ranks of the church militant. Something else important to think about is how this ragtag nation was able to come together and fight as one and defeat their enemies. They were so divided. There was so much infighting, so much distrust among them. Nahash was completely comfortable to let the messengers go out because he was sure that they would never be able to unite and oppose him. But empowered by God's Spirit, Saul defeats Nahash. And then he makes a great political move. You know, after the battle, some of Saul's base, his supporters are are wanting to punish those who doubted Saul. Punish those who didn't acknowledge Saul's kingship. Yeah, you remember those people who said, those people who posted on Facebook, how will this fellow save us? Saul's base is saying, bring out all those doubters who didn't get on the Saul train so that they can be put to death. But Saul wouldn't do it. He says in verse 13, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. He shows mercy to those who doubted him. And here's where I want to end. What is it that united this people to fight together as one? It's that statement in verse 13. The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. What is it that unites the church so that we may work as one body and fight together against our common enemies? The salvation that the Lord has worked. You know, we are made up of redeemed sinners. We are a diverse bunch. Just in this congregation alone, just in this congregation alone, we could be critical and figure out all the differences between us. We are not photocopies of one another. We have different interests and opinions 
We come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. We vote for different politicians. We are at various stages in Christian maturity and growth. On and on I could go. But what unites us as one? What brings us together as the church militant? The salvation that the Lord has worked within each and every one of us. We were wretches, to use John Newton's word, wretches whose eyes God graciously opened to behold the light of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. We've seen our total spiritual bankruptcy and we've looked to the salvation the Lord provided. The Lord Jesus, who died for sinners, who took away our guilt, who satisfied the wrath of God in our place, and who gifted us his perfect obedience. That's what unites us. And there are so many things today that, like Nahash, attempt to divide us so that we won't be able to stand together, so that we won't be able to fight, rather so that we as brothers and sisters will be fighting with each other. Issues like race, different levels of wealth, what state you live in, whether you live in a city or a suburb or a, or a small town. Arguments in the social media comments sections. There are so many things that threaten to divide us. But don't forget what it is that unites us. The salvation that the Lord has worked. Hear these words from Ephesians 4 as a final exhortation. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. For all the saints, who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed. Thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia. Alleluia. God be praised. You have worked salvation in Israel. You have brought your people together and made us one in your Son. You have adopted us and brought us in and made us one family. 
though we may look and talk differently from one another, Lord, you have unified us. May may we not forget it. And may we be those who strive and work for the purity and peace of the church so that we will be able to fight against our flesh and against the kingdom of darkness and unbelief and against our great enemy. We remember that he is in his death throes. The final blow was struck on the cross and his final end will come. May we remember that our captain, Jesus Christ, came, did lead an invasion, has conquered, and his kingdom continues to go forth, even this day, until it covers all of the earth. Lord, help us as we work toward that end together as your people and his bride. We ask in his name. Amen.